Well, how are you guys today? You uh, warm at all? Okay, well, we'll try to warm you up a little bit today. I hope you're uh, going to hang in there with me and keep you awake, okay? So that way, hopefully, you won't, uh, you know, doze off or anything like that. But my name's Carter. I'm one of the pastors here. If I haven't met you, I'm thankful that you're here with us. And before we get started, I do want to put something on your radar today. Uh, I know it seems early, as we announced. Easter is only five weeks away, so it's about a month out from Easter. It's kind of crazy. And this year, we're expecting God to continue using you guys to invite your neighbors and friends and to reach people here throughout our city and to grow our church. So we really believe the time has come for us to try out two services as a church for Easter. And so I just want to start laying that out before you now. Uh, If you were here at Christmas, you know that uh, we had over 180 people in this building. It was tight. Uh, Maybe not in here. We can make this expand, but it was tight out in the lobby. It was tight for our kids' worship. And so that means for us, what we want to do is try two services out for Easter. And when I say we're going to try it out, we're going to do it for four weeks. We're going to do it for the two weeks leading up to Easter, Easter, and then the week after Easter. And then we're going to go back to one service. Okay, so that's how we're going to do it. And I want to put that before you now because that happens in three weeks on March 17th. And so I want to tell you now because it's going to be really important for us to prepare. Our serve teams are going to prepare and we're going to roll out some details as to what that means for all of us in the coming three weeks. But I really believe it's going to be awesome for us. It's going to be rewarding. It's going to give more people an opportunity to come and hear the gospel preached. Uh, So it's going to be really fun to do that. Um, and, you know, we may not go back to, you know, one service at some point. Um, you know, we will. We'll do four weeks and we'll go back, but we may go back to two services again at some point if we have a reason to. And so I, I, hope, that, uh, I hope we have a reason to, you know, as we move into the new location even. Uh, there's going to be a need for that. So just so that you're aware, that's what's coming down uh, the pipe. And I'm excited about it. I hope you guys are as well. So let me go ahead and pray for that uh, and pray for Easter since we've mentioned it. It's five weeks out. Pray for the two services, and then we'll get into the sermon for today. God. I just pray that you'll use our church to reach this city. And God, I pray that uh, this Easter will be an impactful moment for the city of Roanoke and churches all around Roanoke that are preaching the gospel and want to make much of the name of Jesus. Uh, But God, I also pray that for us here. And as we go to two services and try that out, I pray that you'll um, use it. Use it to reach more people. God, we're here. We know you build your church. We don't. Uh, But God, I pray that you'll use us and our people here to reach their neighbors, God. That's why you've brought us uh, into your kingdom at some level is because you love us and then you love others and you want to use us to reach them. And so, God, I pray that we would take that seriously this season. Help us as we go to two services. God, I I pray that you'll use that uh, for your glory in this as well. And Father, while I'm praying, I just want to also pray for our city schools. And this week was a hard week for the city schools. So, God, I pray for our administrators and our teachers and our students. Please keep them safe. Um, But God, also please use this as an opportunity for the gospel in people's lives. We just know that every opportunity that comes up is a gospel opportunity. So please, God, help us to be a witness in our city. And God, I pray that you'll turn our city upside down with the gospel. And I pray that we'll get to be a part of it, God, if we will. So help us, Father. Help us to do that for your glory, for our joy. It's in Jesus' name we pray all this. Amen. All right, well, let's go ahead and turn to Philippians today. Chapter 1, verses 21 through 30 is where we're going to be. If you want to find that on your device or turn in your Bible, we'll have it on the screens for you as well. Uh, But we're continuing in our series, Extremely Ordinary Christianity. You know, we may look extreme to the world. What we do may look extreme to the world, but it's really ordinary for us. And uh, the Christian life is just kind of like that. You know, Paul describes that throughout Philippians, but especially in chapters 1 and 2. And we've seen a few things start to surface over the last few weeks. Last week, we talked about living for Jesus. To us, this life means living for Christ in all that we do, even in our suffering, Paul talked about. Our suffering actually serves to advance the mission in some way. 
And even dying will be gain for us because death, though it's our enemy, has been defeated by Jesus himself, right? He defeated death for us. So it's gain for us. And the week before, we talked about love and the nature of love and what that looks like. And it begins with humility. And it grows us over time. And this week, we'll see some of the same themes resurface as we're talking here. Because remember, this is a letter, and Paul's writing this letter, and this is only the first part of the letter. So he's kind of rehashing some of these themes. But he's going to move into a mode where he says, do this now. He's been speaking some truths over the Philippians, and now he's going to move into a mode where he says, this is how you ought to live. So do this. It's an imperative. It's, hey, command, now do this with your life. And so he's introduced these themes He's going to say, live them out in a certain way. So he'll tell them what it looks like to live as citizens of heaven. That'll be a key phrase for us. And he'll say in verse 27, and this is going to be our main point for today, if you're taking notes and you like to write things down, live your life worthy of the gospel. Live your life worthy of the gospel. That's going to be our main point. That's what his main point in this section is. And I know the term gospel has maybe become like a throwaway term for Christians at this point in some ways. Because we just use it all the time. Gospel, gospel, gospel. So it kind of loses its meaning. You know, everybody seems to use the word gospel as a buzzword in Christian circles. So somebody might hear the word gospel and just get it, it, it's lost on them. Because they hear it so often, and they maybe don't fully understand the depth of it. Others might have never heard the word before. I've talked to you know, people who grew up in church all their life, and they say, what's the gospel? I've, like, you mean like gospel music or something like that? And so, you know, there's like, it gets lost either way. Either we have heard it too much or maybe we haven't heard it enough and we don't fully understand it. And so before we go on, I just want to make sure we're clear on what the gospel is and what it means for us. The gospel at its most basic level is the good news that while we were and are still sinners, Jesus saved, is saving, and will save us if we put our faith in him. That, that's the, just at the most basic level. Jesus in my place. He took our place. He makes us right with God. We're not right with God. We're wrong with him relationally. And now Jesus brings us in and makes us right with God relationally. And that gives us purpose and meaning in this life and an eternal relationship with him and with one another in the next life to come. And it's all about God's grace to us. Like he had to do it for us. That's the whole point of the gospel is that we can't save ourselves. We can't make ourselves right with God. There's nothing we can do, literally nothing. Only Jesus could do it for us and then apply his life to ours. So the glaring question then I have here is when we hear Paul say, live a life worthy of the gospel, does that statement contradict the very grace of the gospel itself? That's the question that I have when I read it. Because when you say the phrase, live worthy of the gospel, it kind of sounds like we're to contribute to our own salvation in some way then. Doesn't it? I mean, maybe that's just me, but that's what I hear. At worst, it sounds like we have to save ourselves. And at least it sounds like we have to contribute something to it, you know? It's almost like Paul's saying, you need to suck it up. And now that I've told you about some things and you're to love and you hear the grace, now you got to live in a certain way to please God, to enable God's grace in your life in some way. But that's not at all what Paul means, and we're going to get into why, and we'll see it in the text. We can't earn grace by our actions or our choices at all. That's the whole point of the gospel itself. We can't... We can't earn the grace. We have to live out of the grace that we've already been given. That's what it means to live worthy of the gospel. The gospel of grace is actually the fuel for the engine, not the place that the engine takes us. Does that make sense? It's the fuel that gets us there. It's not the place that we're actually going. If you just think about somebody who follows Jesus that you really respect. Maybe you're from an older generation, so maybe it's somebody like Billy Graham. 
Maybe you're very well-read, so it's somebody like C.S. Lewis. Maybe you're a Christian hipster, so it's John Mark Homer. I don't know. <laughs> you know, you just think about whoever it is that you look up to as a Christian leader in our Christian context today. They didn't live to get God's grace. They live out of knowing they already have it. That's why you look up to them. There's something about their life that's now supernatural. They've been shown grace, and they're living out of that grace. They're not living for it. I mean, you think about Bonhoeffer, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He wasn't trying to earn God's grace by dying at the hands of the Nazis. That's, he, didn't, he knew he didn't need to earn God's grace in that way. He lived out of the grace that he already had, and it gave him courage. It changed his conduct, led to the actions that he took. That's what we'll talk about today. We'll see some courage and conduct here, some application points but that's really what it means to live your life worthy of the gospel. It's living in response to and out of the grace that you've already been given, not trying to earn that grace, not trying to grasp at the grace yourself. Hopefully that'll become a little bit more clear as we study the text together if you're confused. You know, I think it's a, it's a deep thing, and Paul talks about some confusing things, as Peter says. Sometimes we don't understand Paul. Okay, so let's really dig in and try to, try to understand what he's saying here. We left off in verse 21 last week. We're going to start there this week. And then we'll go to the end of the chapter. This is what Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 1, verse 21. For me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, if I live on in the flesh, this means fruitful work for me, and I don't know which one I should choose. I'm torn between the two. I long to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Since I'm persuaded of this, I know that I will remain and continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith so that because of my coming to you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus may abound. Now, here's, a key, here's our key verse. Just one thing. As citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or am absent, I'll hear about you, that you're standing firm in one spirit, in one accord, contending together for the faith of the gospel, not being frightened in any way by your opponents. This is a sign of destruction for them, but of your salvation, and this from God. For it's been granted to you on Christ's behalf, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, since you're engaged in the same struggle that you saw that I had and now hear that I have. And we'll go into chapter 2 next week. But last week, we discussed what Paul means here in verse 21. We saw that God's mission was Paul's mission. It was very personal to Paul. So if we're Christians, then that means God's mission becomes our personal mission too. We're learning to apply God's mission to every part of our lives every day. That's how to live as a Christian. How does your work, how does your play, how does all, of, all aspects of your life, how do they play into God's mission? And how are you living that out in your life? And Paul brought up suffering last week as a part of that. But he kind of teases it out more here a little bit. And it's a heavy emphasis on living out of the faith that you have, making it visible to the world, no matter the circumstances you're in, suffering or not. And while dying would be gain, Paul says here, because he'd be with Jesus, he's persuaded in verse 25 that he's going to remain for a little longer for the sake of the Philippians and the churches so that he can encourage them. He wants to encourage them in their faith, encourage them to grow in their faith. So as he lives and as they live all this life together, while they're waiting for that eternal day when Jesus is going to come and bring eternity to us, he says in verse 27, just one thing, as citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ, which is our main focus for today. So Paul uses the term citizen here in a specific way to emphasize something about what he's teaching. Okay? I mentioned uh, this in a sermon a few weeks ago, but Philippi was a Roman city. And with Roman citizenship came some significant benefits 
for people living under Roman rule. And, and you know, it's like being an American citizen. There, there's certain benefits to being an American. You know, we have free speech here, freedom of religion, freedom to be as American as you want to be. I mean, you can go ride your dirt bike around with an American flag Speedo on shooting off fireworks, okay? If you want that kind of freedom, this is America, baby, all right? You got freedoms here. You got privileges that other people don't have. So that's what it looks like to be in America. And Paul had some of those kind of benefits as a Roman citizen himself. You know, anytime somebody would try to punish him without a fair trial, he'd make a big deal out of it. I mean, we read in Acts 22, he was taken before uh, some Roman officials and they were about to beat him to try to get the truth out of him. And he said, is this how you're going to treat a Roman citizen? And it made all the Roman officers afraid. They had to take a step back and go, oh, this guy's a Roman citizen. There's some privileges with that that we, we didn't realize that we need to make sure that we take care of him because he is of Roman citizenship. So there's no doubt that any Philippian in this case would, would have worn that citizenship label with pride. Said, yeah, I'm a Roman citizen. And so Paul's using that to help them see that there's something about citizenship in heaven that's even more important. There's a greater label that they have on them that comes with greater privileges And he says, when you follow Jesus, you're a citizen not just of Rome, not just of America or any other nation in the world, but you're a citizen of heaven. So you guys can write that down if you're taking notes. When you follow Jesus, you're a citizen of heaven. That's that's, that's what he's talking about here. Your eyes are on eternity. They're facing toward Jesus. That's where your real citizenship lies. So because of who you are, as a citizen of heaven, now you're to live in a manner worthy of the gospel which was the very thing that made you a citizen of heaven in the first place when you believed. See, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to anyone who believes. Anyone who puts their faith in Jesus, now you become a citizen of heaven. And because of who you are, it's going to change how you live. Again, if we just read Paul's statement on the surface, to live a life worthy of the gospel, it sounds like he's saying do something to earn God's grace. That's what we've posed at the beginning here. Do something to earn the citizenship that you have. You've got to keep the citizenship. See, the thing is, even with Roman citizenship, when you were born in a Roman city, you were Roman. The citizenship was yours just by birth. And so that's what Paul's talking about here. Just because you've been reborn, you have a new birth, now because of who you are in Christ, now you're a citizen of heaven. That's who you are. That's your identity. When we think we have to do the opposite and earn that citizenship, it's kind of like the Saving Private Ryan mentality. You guys remember the, the movie Saving Private Ryan? Yeah, well, if you remember Tom Hanks' character, Captain Miller, he has to lead this, I don't know what you call it, I'm not good with army stuff, like platoon, troop, I don't know, a group of guys, you know, into, deeper into enemy territory to get saving Private Ryan and take him home and keep him alive. And in the process, they all end up dying to do that, to, to send this one man home. And at the end, Captain Miller is dying, across the bridge, if you remember the scene in the movie, he's dying and he pulls Private Ryan close, Matt Damon's character, And he whispers in his ear, earn this, earn this. And then he dies. And so the only one that goes home is Private Ryan. And then cut away right after that to the end of the movie, you see Private Ryan standing over Captain Miller's grave in Arlington Cemetery. And he looks down and he says, I hope it was enough. (laughs) That's how the movie ends, basically. He even turns to his wife and says, tell me I'm a good person. He needs that assurance because he's like, did I earn, did I do enough? to earn this salvation that was given to me. That's where our minds tend to go on this issue of living a worthy life of the gospel. Are we enough? Is it enough? Am I doing enough? But see, that's not Paul's intention here at all. He's not intending to take us there. See, it really boils down to what he means by the word worthy here. 
When you live worthy of something that you've already been given, it means you're living in response to it. It's out of the gift that you've already been given, not to earn the gift because it's already been given to you. You can't earn it anymore. It's already been given. So now you're living in response to the grace, in, in response to the gift. It's really a congruency issue. You know, are you living in congruity with or, or are you living in line with or are you living in agreement with the grace that you have? Does your life match up with or, or does it, you know, say, have something to say how you're living about what you've been given? Does that make sense? Does your life match up with who you say you are and what you say you believe, in other words? You say you've been given God's grace. There's nothing you can do to earn it. You say that he has given you everything that you need to be made right with God. Are you living in line with that? So it's really about the direction in which you're living your life. So here's how you can write this down and reflect about it this week. Is the direction of my life moving toward Jesus? Is the direction of my life moving toward Jesus? That's what Paul means when he says at the end of verse 27, contending together, or at least it's one of the things I think he says, or he means when he says contending together for the faith of the gospel. It's, see, it's fighting for, it's contending, it's striving to keep the direction of your life moving toward Jesus in agreement with the grace that he gave you. It's not striving to be a better person for the sake of earning that grace or keeping that grace. It's striving because of, you know who you are already. It's striving to live into that and live up to that in some sense, but not to earn it. That's how one of the fathers of the modern biblical counseling movement talks about it, the late David Pallison. If you've never read any books by David Pallison, you totally should. You need to write his name down, David Paulison, and read some of his stuff. He used to talk about it in the sense of direction. Sanctification is a direction. Sanctification is just this idea of growing in your faith and looking more like Jesus over time. Paul talks about that here. That's what he's hoping for. He's hoping that his presence will help them in that. He's hoping that remaining will help them continue to grow in their faith over time. It's not about how fast you are in that sanctification process or how many steps that you can take before you die in that sanctification process to make you more like Jesus. It's simply facing the right direction and hopefully moving over time, right? That's what's going to happen. If you're facing in the right direction, you'll eventually take some steps in that direction. But it's really more about the direction. Pallison says, and I'm going to quote from his article at length that he wrote. I think it'll be helpful. You'll, you'll, I don't th even think you'll realize that I'm reading it once I get into it, but this is what he says. He says, the rate of sanctification is completely variable. We cannot predict how it will go. Some people during a season of life leap like gazelles. Let's say you've been living in flagrant sexual sins. You turn from sin to Christ and the open sins disappear. No more fornication, so you stop sleeping with your girlfriend or boyfriend. No more exhibitionism, so you stop wearing that particularly revealing blouse. No more pornography, so you stop surfing the net or reading the latest salacious romance novels. No more adultery or homosexual encounters, so you break it off once and for all. Never again. It sometimes happens like that. Not always, of course, but a gazelle season is a joy to all. For other people, or the same people in a different season of life, sanctification is a steady, measured walk. You learn truth. You face your fears. And you step out toward God and people. You learn to serve others constructively. You build new disciplines. You learn basic life wisdom. You learn who God is, who you are, how life works. You learn to worship, to pray, to give time, money, and care, and you grow steadily, wonder of wonders. Other people, or the same people in another season, are trudging. They're trudging. It's hard going. 
You limp. You don't seem to get very far very fast. Old patterns of desire or fear are stubborn. But if you trudge in the right direction, high praises to the Lord of glory, one day you will see him face to face. You will be like him. Some people crawl on their hands and knees for a long or short season. Progress is painful. You're barely moving. But praise God for the glory of his grace. You're inching in the right direction. And there may be times when you're not even moving, stuck in gridlock, broken down, but you're still facing in the right direction. That's Psalm 88, the basement of the Psalms. The writer feels dark despair, but it's despair oriented in the Lord's direction. In other words, it's still faith. Even when faith feels so discouraged, you can only say, you're my only hope. Help, where are you? That kind of prayer counts. It made it into the Bible. And just when you think that you might not be able to get lower as a Christian, this is how he kind of finishes out his article. There are times you might fall asleep in the blizzard and lie down, comatose and forgetful. But grace wakes you up. It'll remind you and it gets you moving again. There are times you slowly wander off in the wrong direction, beguiled by some false promise or disappointed by a true promise that you falsely understood. But he who began a good work in you awakens you from your sleepwalk sooner or later and puts you back on the path. And then there are times you revolt and do a face plant in the muck. A swan dive into the abyss, but grace picks you up and washes you off again and turns you back. Slowly you get the point, but perhaps then you leap and bound or walk steadily or trudge or crawl or face with greater hope in the right direction. And we love gazelles. Graceful leaps make for great stories about God's wonder-working power. And we like steady and predictable. It seems to vindicate our efforts at making the Christian life work in a business-like manner. But in fact, there is no formula, no secret, no technique, no program, no schedule, and no truth that guarantees the speed, distance, or time frame of our sanctification. On the day you die, you'll still be somewhere in the middle. But you will be further along. When we lengthen the battle, we realize that our business is the direction. Tell me that's not super encouraging to you. Tell me that doesn't help put to words what Paul is saying here in Philippians. Man, where are you in that process? That's why I had the words written up here. Where are you? Are you trudging? Are you simply facing? Are you face down in the muck? Or are you leaving like gazelles, right? What? I don't know. I mean, I know that we get so caught up in making sure that we're doing the right things, right? Making sure that we're believing what's right, making sure we're doing what's right, making sure that we have everything together and that we want to walk steadily or we want to leap like gazelles. And in some sense, that's like there's validity to that, of course. We're striving, but sometimes striving looks a little different than what we might think, right? It usually produces this narrative in our lives if we're not careful when we have that mentality that we've got to be perfect or we've got to get better and better. We say, I've got to do better and try harder. Then it becomes less about God's grace doing that in us. It becomes about us making those choices. Before you know it, I've always got to be the gazelle or I've always got to be walking steady or else I'm not facing the right direction. Listen, it's not a bad thing to strive to get to those levels. That's what Paul's talking about here. But you also have to be realistic and recognize where you are and where God has you. You've got to understand what it looks like to walk in the direction of Jesus. But the problem is, no matter how hard we try, see, this is the key here. Our good works are still like filthy rags. We can make the best choices. 
We can do the best things. We can sound really good and we're never good enough. That's the whole point of the gospel. No matter where you are in your walk, you're always in the middle somewhere. You've never arrived. Problem is we're never worthy enough. You can write that down. We can never make ourselves worthy enough. No matter how much we want to be, God has to do that in us over time. We continue to make the wrong choices. We say the wrong things in harsh ways. We look lustfully at others. We are prideful or arrogant or envious, malicious, whatever it might be for you in your life. You start applying that to yourself, and we want to do better now. We live in a culture of now, right? We live where we want everything now. we got to have it now, and if it's not now, then it's not real. We get discouraged. We're like, man, I'm still struggling. We wonder whether or not we're actually a Christian. We try to fix ourselves rather than letting God fix us over time and showing ourselves the same grace that he's shown us in the gospel. Or worse yet, we start trying to fix other people like we talked about a few weeks ago so that we won't have to deal with our own sins and doubts so that we'll say, well, they're worse than I am. At least I'm further along in my walk than they are. Start comparing. They're terrible because they're face down. They're terrible because... They're on their stomach inching, and I'm leaping like a gazelle. I'm, I'm walking steadily, and then before we realize it, we've face-planted in the muck, and we don't, we don't even see it ourselves because we've gone back to a place where we don't believe the gospel. So we judge others unfairly. But listen, this is a slow, lifelong process that takes an entire lifetime to change. Why do we think it's so important that love is patient and kind and bears all things and hopes all things and believes all things Because we have to show that to other people because God's done that for us. Our ministry resident, Matt, said it like this this week. He said, it's a crockpot recipe, man. It's not a microwave dinner, you know? It's just a way to put put uh, your finger right on the point, you know? It's like that for all of us. We focus on the direction, making sure that we're facing the right direction and then pointing others in the same direction. Not trying to fix them, not trying to tell them how to live their life or anything like that, but... Look at Jesus. Look at, look at Christ. Look at what he's done for you. Look at the grace that he's shown you. How can you now take steps toward him in your courage and conduct, as we'll get into here in just a minute? Can't fix each other, can't fix ourselves. Just got to point each other and ourselves back to the grace that we've been shown. We're citizens of heaven. Because Jesus himself is the direction in which we need to run. We need to turn toward him in faith. We'll see him, that he saved us, And he will change us over time. When you turn to Jesus, he declares who you are, not your actions, not your choices. He declares your identity, not not you. He declares your citizenship because he gives you his own. That's the whole thing, right? He's traded places with you so that now you are God's chosen people by faith. When you believe in him and put your faith in his life, death, and resurrection, you are made new. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, by faith is what he means there, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and see the new has come. That is who you are now if you put your faith in Jesus, no matter where you are on that journey in your direction. As long as you're facing that direction of Jesus, you're made new because Jesus makes you new. Here's what you can write down. Jesus has given us his own worth. Jesus has given us his own worth. He was perfectly worthy for us, though we'll never be worthy enough. And then he died the death for our unworthiness that we deserve. So he traded places with us in that way, and then he rose from the dead 
so that now we can walk in this new life and begin living out eternity here and now into eternity then, living a life worthy of that grace that we've been shown because we're relying on the grace every day. That's what makes us worthy. That's what makes our life worthy. We're relying on the grace. We're trusting the grace. We know the grace is the thing that's carrying us through. And see, Jesus extends that offer of worthiness to us if we put our faith and trust in him. So it takes faith. Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you've been saved through faith. Galatians 2.16, we know that a person's not justified by works of the law, but by faith. So let me ask you this. Do you believe that he's done everything that you needed him to do to save you today? Do you believe he's still doing everything that you need him to do to save you and sanctify you and make you more like Christ over time? And will you continue to believe that he's carrying you on to completion until that day when eternity becomes a reality for us here? Do you believe that? When we'll get to see that our faith is made into sight. If you haven't put your faith in Jesus today, you can. You can turn and face the right direction today. Just look to him and put your faith in his grace. One of the guys in sermon planning this week said it like this. I think it's worth writing down. Commitment happens now, but change happens over a lifetime. You're committing to put your faith in him now, but man, you're committing to know that that faith change in you is going to take all of your life. So show yourself some grace in this. Show others grace in this because see, God has shown you all grace in it. There's not one thing you can do to change yourself other than run back to the grace of Jesus. So commit to do that over and over again so that you can commit to seeing the change happen over a lifetime. And that leads to this application that I mentioned a minute ago. Only if you're committed to the direction of moving forward and toward Jesus, going deeper into the grace, will it eventually show up in how you live over the course of your lifetime. So it reminds me of what James says, right? Faith without works is a dead faith. In other words, faith will work itself out in your life in some way. It'll prove itself to be real, if I could put it like that, in some way, over time. And I'm sure that we could apply this in many different ways, but Paul does it in two specific ways here with conduct and courage. So let me just mention courage first. First, living our lives worthy of the gospel will show up in our courage. It'll show up in our courage. We discussed suffering some last week. I won't linger here too long, but Paul's just continuing his thoughts with this language of standing firm and contending together and striving all this different stuff. And he says in verse 28, not to be frightened in any way by your opponents, people who oppose your faith, people who oppose Jesus. It's this idea that if you're suffering, you can do that without fear because you know the worst that can happen to you is that you die and you know that dying is even gain for you because you'll be with Jesus. See, Paul says that even suffering serves to grow us in our salvation. It serves to mature us in our faith. So we suffer knowing that God is with us. Because we have the grace, we're citizens of heaven. We're living out of the grace. Similar to what uh, we studied in 1 Peter last month, I think. Maybe uh, you remember 1 Peter 3. We talked about this. I'll just reread this for you. Peter wrote, Who then will harm you if you're devoted to what's good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness, you're blessed. Do not fear them or be intimidated. But in your hearts, regard Christ the Lord as holy, ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you. Yet do this with gentleness and reverence, keeping a clear conscience so that when you're accused, those who disparage your good conduct in Christ 
will be put to shame. For it's better to suffer for doing good if that should be for God's will than for doing evil. And in that context, what he's saying is if you suffer for being a jerk to people or for being arrogant or for being irreverent, lacking that gentleness, for doing anything evil like that, when you do it, he says you'll get what you sow. It's justified, but when you suffer for the gospel's sake, when you suffer for doing good, when you suffer for trying to show people love in a loving and gentle and reverent kind of way, Jesus himself says, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. When you suffer for your faith, then you are citizens of heaven. The kingdom is yours. That's what Jesus means. When you suffer for the mission, when you suffer for sharing that love of Jesus with others, sharing that grace with others, Paul says it'll show those who oppose the mission that their destruction is coming. Your courage will do that. Doesn't mean you try to beat people over the head with the truth. Peter just said to do it with gentleness and reverence. But what that means is that what we said a few weeks ago, you can't fix people. You can't tell them what they must and must not do. What you have to do, that's God's job to fix people. What you have to do is point them in the right direction. The correct direction is to Jesus. You can, though, like Peter says, be ready to give a reason for the hope that you have. Be ready to share the gospel. Be ready to give them that grace if they'll hear it. You can't even force people to hear that. But you certainly can't force them to live the Christian lifestyle if they don't have the faith that you do. They just won't listen. They can't yet. They need to be pointed in the right direction. That's the first step for them. So be courageous enough to point them in the right direction. Point them to Jesus. Be courageous enough to love them if they hate you. Be courageous enough to forgive them if they wrong you. Be courageous enough to keep pursuing them if they've turned away from you and seemingly written you off because of your extreme, quote, extreme Christian life that's fueled and motivated, motivated by the grace that you have. And to be misunderstood is to suffer like Christ. That's how Paul can say it's been granted to us. It's been granted to us, not just to believe in Jesus, but to suffer for him. Because it's a privilege. It's an honor to suffer the way that he did. That's the life of a citizen of heaven. So we're to have courage, Paul says, and there's way more we could say. But the second thing that we're going to talk about here, living our lives worthy of the gospel will show up in our conduct. And this will be our last point of application for today. It'll show up in our conduct, which of course shows up in being courageous. That's part of our conduct. But also, Paul mentions a couple of other ways here in verse 27. He wants to hear that they're standing firm in one spirit, in one accord, unity, contending together for the faith of the gospel. So that means we have unity in diversity. With one spirit, one accord, we're all from different walks of life, all from different backgrounds, all from different cultures, all from different ethnicities, tribes, languages, doesn't matter. We're unified in that. Michael's actually going to talk more about the engine behind unity next week as we get into chapter 2. And it'll be humility, as Paul's already brought up here. So I'm not going to say too much today on that, but Paul lays the foundation for it here today in this passage by saying it's for the sake of the mission that we're unified. We have one purpose, and it's so that we can make much of Jesus and point people toward him. Together, in unity, under the banner of the gospel, we point people to Jesus. Paul says in chapter 2, to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. It means growing more into Jesus' image. Imitate me as I imitate Christ, Paul will go on to say. So you do want to use your conduct to help you see areas of growth that you still need in your faith. You know, conduct becomes kind of like that litmus test that tells you where you are in that process. 
Are you crawling? Are you trudging? Are you facing? Are you leaping? Your conduct helps you see that. Conduct is a little tricky in that way because conduct is not necessarily what you do, although it is. I mean, there, there are some clear Christian practices that God has given us that we want to do as Christians, but it's really in how or why you do them that makes the difference. You know, if we go to back to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he talks about our heart posture in what we do, not just in our actions, right? It's, behind, it's the thing behind the action that makes the difference because our heart works its way out into our lives. What's in our heart comes out in how we say things, what we do, how we live. So some things in life aren't necessarily, quote, Christian, you know, if we want to say it like that. For example, what kind of food you prefer to eat, you know, what kind of clothes you want to buy, uh, what kind of car you drive, and all of those different things. It's really often personal preference, right? Though anybody who doesn't like God's Christian chicken, Chick-fil-A, you know, I mean, I don't know if I can, that's the only exception to that, okay? So if you don't prefer that, I don't know, you know. <laughs> it's a joke, please. <laughs> okay, don't, don't get angry, it's a joke. Uh, but if your food is always unhealthy and you're not caring well for your body, or if your clothes are always revealing and sexual in nature, or if you just got to drive that car that you can't afford, it's way more than you can wisely afford just so that people think a certain way about you. You see, you see how it gets a little tricky, right? Same conduct, different motivations. So you got to get, get down to the heart level. Conduct is tricky here because in one sense, you will look more like Jesus over time in what you do, but it's because your heart's being changed by the grace that he has in your life. You grow more and more thankful. So like Paul, you can say, I rejoice. What's it matter to me? I rejoice. You'll be thankful for the grace that God has given you. And I think many Christians believe that when you become a Christian, you stop wanting sin or you should stop sinning immediately. At least I think that's what we think God expects of us sometimes, right? But man, it's a battle. It's striving. It's contending. It's suffering over a lifetime. We've already said that. But you know, Romans 7 is a perfect example of this. Paul well, who we can say is maybe the greatest of apostles, the greatest Bible teacher, but maybe one of the greatest Christians of all, right? We got Jesus and then we got Paul right under him, right? That's how we think of it. Even Paul himself in Romans 7 says there's a struggle. He does the things that he doesn't want to do and he doesn't do the things that he wants to do. There's a struggle. If you're not seeing the struggles in your own heart, maybe you haven't been around Christian community long enough, Maybe you're not leaving yourself open for brothers and sisters to speak truth into your life in that way. That's why contending together is so important in this. We've got to be able to help one another do the same things that we want to do. We've got to be able to help one another in the grace that we want to have in our lives, in the grace that the only grace that's going to change us. We've got to be able to point one another in the right direction. Thank God Jesus' conduct was perfect for us because we're all broken in that. Thank God that he was courageous for us even to the point of laying his life down and suffering to the point of death on our behalf. So our only appropriate response to believing that good news is to live a life worthy of the gospel, not to earn the grace, but to live out of that grace and the identity that he has declared over us. And let me just end with this example, very short example. Dr. Bill Wallace was a missionary to China back in the 1950s, and he cared so well for the Chinese people that someone once wrote of him, the Chinese had heard missionaries preach sermons before, but in Bill Wallace, they began to see one and that made a difference. They'd heard sermons preached, but they began to see the sermon lived out in his life. And of course, we've talked about this. You've got to share the gospel. The gospel's words. But you also got to live out of that grace. 
it will show up. The grace will just come out in how you live. And then the article goes on to say, many began to treasure his medical skills, but also his commitment to Christ. And the article ended like this. It said, the ones who were not touched by Bill's compassion and love were the Chinese communists. Bill represented the things that the communist regime wanted to wipe out. Based on evidence planted in his room, communist authorities arrested and imprisoned Bill as a spy. Those who were able to visit him reported that he was being interrogated and tortured. He urged his friends, go back and take care of the hospital. I'm ready to give my life if necessary. Bill died in jail less than two months later. In addition to his missionary colleagues and family in the U.S., he was mourned by thousands of Chinese that he'd cared for in those hospitals. They risked punishment by placing a monument on the unmarked grave of Bill Wallace with these words, for me to live as Christ, Philippians 1.21. And I hope Philippians is getting deep down in our hearts. I hope God's moving in us to live a life worthy of the gospel out of the grace that he's shown us. I hope that we can look more like citizens of heaven this week because of the grace that we've been shown. And I'm looking forward to next week as we get into unity and humility. We go ahead and pray for us, God. Thanks so much for listening with us today. We hope that it was an encouragement to you. But you know, we don't see this as a replacement for gathering with other believers in a local church context. So if you don't have a local church, we would encourage you to plug in with one wherever you are. And if you're in Roanoke, Virginia, we'd love to invite you to plug in with us here at Redemption Church. And you're welcome anytime to gather with us. But you can check us out online at our our website, redemptionroanoke.com. You can look for other content or resources there. But thanks again for listening.